You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to SpyCast, from the secret files of the International Spy Museum in Washington, D.C. I'm Dr. Vince Houghton, the museum's historian and curator. Every month, the museum brings you interesting talks with authors, scholars, and practitioners who live in the world of global espionage. Join us as we take a closer look at the secret world of intelligence. We are joined today by Joe Whipple, who is the Director of Graduate Studies and Professor of the Practice of International Relations at the Boston University Pardee School of Global Studies. He is also a former CIA officer who spent a 30-year career as an operations officer in the National Clandestine Service, although at the time he's probably the Director of Operations. Whipple has served overseas as an operations officer and operations manager in Bonn, West Germany. For the kids out there, there used to be a country called West Germany. <laughs> Guatemala City, Luxembourg, Madrid, Spain, Mexico City, Vienna, Austria, and Berlin, Germany, where he was the station chief. On assignments in CIA headquarters, he served as a deputy chief of human resources, as a senior NCS representative to the Aldrich Ames Damage Assessment Team, as chief of Europe division, and as the CIA's director of congressional affairs. Whipple has coordinated extensively with other members of the U.S. intelligence community, and prior to his arrival at Boston University in 2006, he occupied the Richard Helms Chair for Intelligence Collection in the NCS training program. His areas of expertise include security and intelligence, terrorism, and ISIS. Joe, thank you for taking the time to talk to us here at the International Spy Museum. Thank you. So whenever we have a former practitioner, I, I like to ask the question about their recruitment. Because a lot of our audience are young people, high school, college students who are thinking about a career in intelligence. And now with so many different agencies, with so much going on in the world of intelligence, they're wondering, how do I get in? How do I become involved in this? What is the right job for me? So can you talk a little bit about how you got into the CIA? Uh, I was uh, studying to become an academic uh, in uh, modern European history and had a uh, grant uh, to go overseas, uh, fellowship to go overseas. And uh, uh, this fellowship was in Germany. And I think during that year I came to realize that an academic life isn't what I really wanted. I wanted more of an international life. I uh, had always been inter uh, interested in international affairs and politics. And so I came back to the uh, University of Minnesota recruiter where I was studying at the time. And um, he suggested, you know, the State Department exam, the, sec uh, the uh, Department of Defense, uh, international banking. And, by the way, here's the telephone number of the CIA recruiter in St. Paul. And, uh, and that's what started it. And uh, it's, uh, you know, I think a, lo a lot of life is shooting a dart at a dartboard. Uh, but I was uh, I made a, a, a known, unknowing but great decision for my life because I, I really, really enjoyed my career in CIA. And, and a lot of people today, this is very different today than, than it was when you were recruited as far as the number of people who are trying to get into a job at CIA. Uh, but often we, we 
we tell people here at the museum, getting into CIA is like getting into a Ivy League school. Is everyone who applies is very, very smart. Everyone has some kind of background that makes them unique. What do you think attracted the CIA to you? Like, what, what can you give as advice for young people thinking about a career in the CIA uh, to try to make them more you know, appealing to the agency? Well, I think one thing that attracted uh, them to me was age. Uh, I was over 25. I think they like to, both they and, and State Department likes to recruit people between 25 and 35. Uh, I think uh, uh, fluency in a language, uh, I was very fluent in, uh, in German language. Uh, that certainly is uh, uh, true today, too, if you've got real fluency in just about any language. I mean, the flavors of the day are Chinese and Arabic and Persian and Dari. But if you're really a fluent Spanish speaker, that's going to help you. I think, um, you know, having a, a master's degree, having lived overseas, having had experience overseas, I think anybody who can bring other skills to the table, uh, including knowledge of international relations, but it can be computer science, it can be, you know, the sciences and some uh, physics, uh, biochemistry, uh, those type of things. Anybody that can uh, combine these things. And then just plain old experience. Mm -hmm. You know, uh, I've had a student come to me and say, well, should I take this internship or should I work in my father's business? I work in your father's business, right. you know, so that you really uh, uh, learn something. And then uh, I think it's just personality traits. You know, uh, yeah, good old patriotism, uh, a wish to serve, I think is is also important for someone applying to CIA. You're actually one of our rare podcast guests who, whose career extended th through three different transitional periods. A lot of times our guests will have retired before the end of the Cold War, before 9-11, or, or they're relatively young mm -hmm. CIA agents who uh, started after 9-11. Your career actually expands pre the end of the Cold War into that 1990s period of uncertainty and then, of course, post 9-11. Can we talk a little bit about those very important transitional periods. How did the end of the Cold War hit you as a CIA operations officer, especially in Germany, right? Somebody that yeah. was German. Well, I was, uh, I was in, actually, I was in Madrid uh, when the wall came down. Uh, I, I mean, I, I was incredibly happy about the end of that era and uh, the end of the Cold War, uh, simply because of the danger of having 30,000 nuclear weapons on, on both sides. And I felt uh, subsequently that that would be, uh, you know, a, a really great era of intelligence collection, uh, because you're going from a, a kind of a black and white world or a bifurcated world into a more uh, complex, uh, messy uh, type of world uh, that we're in right now which is much more interest-driven uh, by, you know, various countries, regions, uh, and uh, national groups, religious groups, and so on and so forth. And, um, you know, I've always been a little bit skeptical of the American penchant for friends and enemies. I'm not so sure if we have friends or enemies. Uh, we have interests. Others have interests that they follow. I think intelligence is there uh, to help us define our own interests and understand the interests of others so that, you know, we can move forward. So I, I, think, I think it was easier uh, uh, before the end of the Cold War, although a lot of our intelligence collection wasn't just on the Soviet Union mm -hmm. or on Mao's China. I think it was much more uh, diverse uh, than that. 
I think, uh, you know, going into the 90s, uh, you know, there was obviously the peace dividend. Uh, there were big cuts in uh, intelligence capability, uh, which I think uh, we suffered for uh, after after 9-11. And I think uh, subsequent to 9-11, I think, uh, regrettably, the focus has very much been on just a few issues, right. Iran, Iraq, Pakistan, Afghanistan, uh, somewhat uh, all, uh, remaining China. But in a lot of areas of the world, I think we have, um, have, have had insufficient focus, especially since, you know, intelligence collection is so much looking 20 years ahead, right. 10 years ahead, 20 years ahead, 30 years ahead. I mean, if we wanted to have intelligence on Iraq in 2003, we should have started 30 years right. earlier when they weren't hostile. Right. But you look at Iraq, it's, it's in collecting intelligence. You don't collect the intelligence on necessarily, you know, targets that are hostile. You, you collect it because they're important. Uh, they're important to you. And they're not hostile. They're going to be right. very friendly for that right. matter. Oh, and is that how you would answer that those who criticize American collection today on countries that are allies, that like Germany, for instance? I mean, you are the German expert. Right. You know, there was a hubbub a year and a half ago, maybe last year, where apparently we were we were tapping Angela Merkel's phone, although we weren't. Apparently now that there's no evidence of that, but certainly we pay attention to what is happening inside Germany. Uh, is that how you would answer critics of that program? Well, I would say that's a that's a very interesting question because it's a pretty complicated question. On the one hand, uh, on a political level, uh, you are asking uh, Germany to carry the water for us on a major trade treaty. Mm -hmm. uh, you're asking Germany to carry the water for us on Ukraine, uh, and uh, essentially is is the dominant power in the in the European Union. So, uh, you know, you're, you probably need some kind of special relationship different from the one that we have with the United Kingdom, but a special relationship anyway. Now, that's one side of the thing. Right. Now, you know, engaging in human and espionage, uh, you have to do it in a different way in a country like Germany, which may, might not be the classical, you know, recruitment way. But essentially, perhaps finding uh, sources who, on a confidential way, want to speak to you and tell you what they're thinking, without it necessarily getting in, onto uh, you know 50 desks in right. Washington. So it's a and 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 this type of, to frankly, to be honest with you, this type of sophistication, I don't know if we're capable of. I mean, uh, you know, if you served in the third world or you know in some other areas of the world where. You know, uh, the recruitment cycle is very easy and, uh, you know, it's easy to make recruitments and, you know, it, it's, it's very different than, um, you know, a German-French. Uh, right, much know, more that, nuanced. Yeah, uh, extremely yeah. more nuanced. But I think there is a role for that, mm -hmm. that, you know, that there are people who want to talk off the record uh, to, you know, the, the U.S., which is still going to be the dominant power in the world. The re reverse can also be true here in Washington when they're when they're right. when they're when they're diplomats and intelligence officers fan off. Yeah, back fan channels yeah. have been a way of right. doing things right. for a minute, long, long right. time. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, so I want to talk a little bit about your students at Boston University because actually you're one of the unique former practitioners that is now teaching average everyday people who don't have necessarily a background in intelligence. We face a lot of challenges here at the museum where our guests. Uh, come from a world where the only thing they know, and I'm putting quotes around that, you don't see that, but there's air quotes in my head, that 
about intelligence is what they've seen in a James Bond movie or Born or TV, <laughs> The Americans, or or maybe even what they've read in newspapers and not truly gotten beyond the headlines and understood what it was. I imagine you face a lot of the same challenges dealing with undergraduate students uh, that don't have a background in intelligence. I think the biggest problem, uh, you know, dealing with uh, undergraduate students and maybe even in a wider scope than that is uh, there's not much concentration on international affairs. I mean, one of the first things I will start each class with is what is the president probably reading about in his president's daily brief today? whether that's President Obama or President Bush or whoever it is. So that there isn't that familiarity of things going on. What does the president want to know? I mean, what does he want to know about the positions that the Iranians are taking in the, uh, you know, in the negotiations? What about the internal conflicts in Iran that are going on? You know, and this is something that you know, you're not going to get uh, in the nightly news, the nightly national news or CNN or anything like that. And so I think that's the real challenge. Mm-hmm. And the challenge that probably you're facing here at the Spy Museum as well as, as any is that in a way we're becoming more isolationist rather than more international right. in an era of greater globalization, which I think is, is very, very ironic. So, you know, it's, it's, it's getting people to concentrate on, uh, on this. But I'd say, you know, on any weekly edition of the New York Times, you know, three or four or five days of those, there is an article about intelligence. Yeah, now more than ever. I, exactly. If you look 10, 15 years ago, the public didn't know anywhere right. near, or at least didn't have a, an idea. The joke back, of course, in the 80s and 90s was NSA was no such agency. Right, and, right, right. And no one had heard of it. And certainly even today, you have agencies like NRO that – people are starting to learn about for the first right. time. Uh, and, you know, if you're going to have a well-functioning democracy, you kind of need to have people who are voting that understand some of these mm-hmm. issues on a broader level than they do otherwise. Right. One, of, one of your specialties uh, is terrorism and ISIS. And I, and I want to we, – we've had guests before that have had different backgrounds than you do. So I want to kind of get your particular uh, viewpoint on ISIS. Uh, and I've heard the answer to this question in very different ways. How is ISIS different how are they? Why are they not Al Qaeda writ large? What, what, what is? Do we have to treat them a different way? Because I know you've given interviews on this. Yeah. I know you've talked about this in the press. Uh, I'm not sure. I would call myself an expert on this. You know, I've been, I probably have as uh, you know good an opinion as uh, as you do. I, I think probably that the difference uh, might be that uh, uh, you know they have a much more sophisticated program. I mean, they actually are. Uh, somewhat proficient at, at establishing a government, you know, somebody that makes sure that the, you know, that the uh, electricity works, that the that the water is running, and then they have a uh, very sophisticated recruitment program and a strong ideological uh, component to that. I think uh, too radical for it to really to to really uh, stay there forever. I mean, I think it, there's going to be a point in time when. You know, people are just broken by that type of system mm-hmm. and will react against it and won't cooperate, and it'll create more enemies that will ev- eventually destroy them if they don't destroy themselves first. Okay. So that's that's my that's my opinion. But when you say expert on that, I got I got to beg well, off. So, a so there, well, there is a level of expertise that you have that I do want to tackle here with as far as ISIS is concerned, and that's the role of intelligence against an organization like this. Mm-hmm. It doesn't have to be ISIS specifically. I mean, right. beyond covert action, which is the obvious, right? Go kill them where they are. What is the role of human intelligence, imagery intelligence, signal intelligence when you're dealing with a non-state actor, someone, uh, you know? 
we're not we're no longer in, in this world where it's let's study the Russians, let's study the the mm-hmm. Chinese. You have potential issues with leadership. You don't know who they are. You don't know where they are. How do we fight this war through the intelligence prism? I think, uh, you know, in some ways it's uh, it's somewhat traditional, except for the fact that you really have to uh, be looking ahead. I mean, um, uh, some people were surprised by the Arab Spring, but I really wasn't surprised. I didn't know when it was going to happen. But I think also believed always that these family businesses couldn't go on forever. Uh, so you have to be uh, prepared for surprises, even if you don't know what that surprise is going to be. Uh, but there are a lot of different ways, uh, you know, uh, to penetrate penetrate these organizations, uh, to try and influence uh, uh, these organizations, and to understand these organizations. And I think there's in these regard, in this regard, in almost any other intelligence area, there simply is uh, no substitute for expertise on them. To uh, hire people, and to train people, and to maintain people in their expertise on these various organizations. I think I don't think Americans like expertise, especially especially the political class right. doesn't like expertise. Somebody coming to them saying, sorry, Mr. President, sorry, uh, uh, Secretary, this isn't going to work, you know. Right. And, uh, and, and so I think there's, uh, you know, get as much expertise on SIGINT, HUMINT, uh, IMINT uh, that you possibly can, always looking ahead uh, for the next thing that could happen. Uh, because there's some of those things that I'm, you know, I, th- I think uh, a lot of these uh, uh, governments uh, in the Middle East, Africa as well, mm-hmm. you know, they just can't go on forever. Right. All right. We are the most technically proficient country the world has ever seen. Are we getting, are we relying too much on the technical collection aspects? Are we going too far away from the old-fashioned human intelligence? Particularly, forget forget the Middle East, forget terrorism. Right, right. Worldwide, dealing with Russia, China, everywhere else, are we getting, are we relying too much on satellites and the NSA, are we going away from the old-fashioned, tried-and-true way of doing espionage? I believe uh, in espionage, and again, I. Uh, but I also believe in you know signal intelligence and imagery intelligence. I don't know how you can um, uh, you know frustrate the efforts of terrorists without getting into their communications right. networks. Uh, but for a deeper understanding of the world. I believe that um, intelligence collection through uh, human is absolutely essential. And the areas that I saw it in my career uh, where we had the most influence essentially was uh, when our reporting and uh, State Department reporting were basically saying Mm -hmm. the same thing, coming in different, uh, maybe coming at it from different angles, but actually changing. Uh, U.S. policy through knowledge and understanding. So I believe very strongly in that. Let's shift gears a little bit. Was one, one of your uh, one of your career moments was being part of the Aldrich Ames damage assessment team. And, and for anyone who's been to the Spy Museum, we, we highlight Ames here. We have his mailbox uh, that he used to signal his Soviet handler. Uh, and certainly, it's neck and neck between him and Robert Hansen as the most damaging spy in American history. And you were on the team. Uh, that determined the kind of the damage that Ames did. Um, and I, I want to ask you a little bit about that because the, the Ames, uh, set, the, 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 the document that came out, the report, uh, said that Ames caused more damage to the United States, the national security of the United States, than any spy in the history of CIA. Now, there, there, there is that. The Rosenbergs CIA, right? and the, the, right. the atomic spies after the war. Yeah. Yeah. 
So what was it like to be on that, that committee, and, and do you put Ames up there with the, the worst of the worst? He certainly belongs in the Spies Hall of Fame. Yeah. <laughs> and uh, uh, he essentially compromised uh, all, our, all our agents in the, uh, in the Soviet Union. Uh, it led to the death of 10 or 12. Uh, I don't know the exact number anymore. Uh, so um, he compromised a lot. And I think uh, the other thing that's often forgotten, he compromised them just before the, the f- uh, collapse mm-hmm. of, the, of the Soviet Union. Uh, and some of those people might have been really helpful uh, to us mm-hmm. in explaining what was going on and, and why it was going on and so on. Uh, so uh, he did uh, a tremendous amount of damage. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, so that's one side of the coin. The other side of the coin is that uh, this is part of the intelligence business, that every so often there's going to be that point zero 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 one percent of people uh, who will go and, and spy for someone else. Mm-hmm. And I also believe that we don't catch them all, uh, that there's a few people down in Florida, you know, getting their pension checks who actually engaged in espionage on behalf of someone else. But, yeah, he was a very, very uh, destructive uh, uh, spy and, a, and a, just a terrific source for the Soviet Union and then later Russia. The, the, the assessment of him had some pretty harsh things to say about CIA, uh, do you look at Ames as a, it's just going to happen eventually, statistics say you're going to have somebody like that, or do you see Ames as some kind of indication of some fundamental problem within CIA in the 1980s and 1990s? Uh, no, I don't. I, I mean, I think his, uh, his career, uh, you know, beginning in uh, 1967 uh, when he joined, all the way up until 1981, uh, was going along in a normal uh, fashion. I mean, in 1981, he was actually ranked 13 out of uh, 111 uh, in his his grade. Uh, and then I think uh, things began to fall apart for him, uh, and uh, you know, he met a, a second uh, his second wife, and she had needs, very strong material mm-hmm. needs. And uh, I think uh, at that time he found that the way he could, you know, uh, satisfy these needs, especially material needs, uh, was to uh, engage in espionage against uh, against CIA. I think you can do uh, you, you can you can do as much as you possibly can, and you know, in the investigative process and so on and so forth. But that is just one of those things that is part of intelligence, and hardly any intelligence organization. You know, hasn't been penetrated uh, at at one time or the uh, or the other. Um, you know, during that during that, it was a really an interesting time. I could talk about this for the you know the next hour. But there was all this business about everybody. You know, he was a, a you know a, a terrible officer, uh, and he, he was uh, you, everyone. He was for everyone to see. You could see that he was uh, incapable. Uh, he was a boozer, and uh, so on and so forth. But a lot of that simply uh, simply isn't true, mm-hmm. and um, he actually had a lot of friends in the uh, in the agency because he cultivated his uh, his friendships. Not necessarily not for intelligence collection, really, uh, but just because uh, because they were friendly. So I think uh, you know a uh, a person like that is uh, is it's it's literally uh, impossible to avoid. I think the lesson the major lessons you learn uh, from from that is that um, I think when those people started disappearing, 
what they probably could have done is had a more concentrated group at an earlier stage looking at looking at this thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that might have uh, given them an indication that there was something, uh, uh, you know, going on. Uh, the other issue, of course, it seems, and I, I, I'm not sure of my information on this, that uh, at some time or other there was also uh, uh, one of our penetrations um, of the Russian service, which gave us indications mm-hmm. of a high-level uh, asset uh, of theirs in in CIA. So it's a uh, this, this counterintelligence stuff is really interesting. I mean, you know, people say how could he work for nine years? You know, well, Robert Hansen, I think, voted right. worked for about twenty years. Johnny Walker for twenty years. And if your agent is safe, it's really hard to catch him. Yeah, there's a lot of hindsight Monday morning oh. quarterbacking about all oh, these yeah, cases. Yeah. How did you miss that? Well, yeah. you know, <laughs> you're right. It's you, easy to see now. Yeah, right? yeah. And, and and you know you probably didn't. You know, like I say, if if your agent is uh, uh, is is secure, uh, it's very hard to catch him. Uh, it really comes down to unless they don't if, if they don't make mistakes. Right. You know, the only way you're going to catch them is if they do something dumb. Or, or if you have a penetration. Right. Mean, or the way to catch a spy yeah. is with a spy. It's a very good book in uh, German called Headquarters Germany, in which, you know, these by these two MFS guys, East German spies, say, you know, writing about uh, CIA, and they say, well, we had a lot of these people doubled, and we knew what was going on, but there was one we just didn't know about, and we knew who the case officer was, and we, but we couldn't catch him. Well, that's because they didn't know about him. Simple as that. Yeah. Toward the end of your career, we, we talked about this in the introduction, you uh, were the Richard Helms Chair for Intelligence Collection at the NCS training program. So let's talk a little bit about training. Uh, is it better than it once was? Is it worse? Is it different? You can only say so much, of course, because you know, training officers is, is somewhat hush-hush. Um, but what do you think it's necessary? Say you were planning the curriculum for training future operations officers 10 years from now, 15 years from now. What do you think is necessary for the future CIA, a generation from now, perhaps, that's different than when you went through training? Um, I think... I know I'm putting you on yeah, the spot. Right? No, I mean, that's a, that's a, a you know, I think an uh, interesting and, and good question. I think, first of all, we train them a lot. They spend a lot of time in training. Um, uh, you know, a decade or so ago, I was talking to one of my uh, uh, British colleagues, and I asked, uh, how much time do you spend in training? And they said, well, you know, five months, so we're trying to get it down to four. Uh, and our biggest problem is, you know, the pitch. You know, how do you make a recruitment approach and so on? And I'm thinking, you know, guys, we have just tons more of training. Um, I think uh, probably the best training is, go- is going out to the field and having a good mentor an experienced officer uh, to help you learn uh, uh, what you're supposed to do. But I think beyond that, uh, other than the good old-fashioned learning tradecraft is, I think, really important. Mm -hmm. I mean, really, really important. Uh, But then uh, bringing those other skills to bear, you know, having good language, uh, having good uh, knowledge of uh, the culture that Mm -hmm. you're in, uh, being there uh, a long period of time, uh, and uh, having the personal characteristics uh, that will make you a success, that will, be, that will result in successful espionage. Is there a problem in the general sense? Again, this might be leaning toward possible security issues. Is, is there an issue with rotating people out of stations once they finally got their, their feet on the ground? I mean, the idea of 
this is a good agent. He's overseas. He's doing a good job. Let's bring him back to headquarters and prepare him for something else, or let's move him somewhere else. You know, I, I'm trying to say this without saying anything I shouldn't say, but uh, you talked about area knowledge. I mean, you, even your bio. Let's go to your bio. You were lots of different places. Would it have been more beneficial to stick you somewhere for 10 years and just get unbelievably knowledgeable about, about that area, about that environment, uh, versus bouncing you around? I think that's a, a general situation uh, in the U.S. government and in our, our international relations and in our national security institutions. It's not just uh, you know, CIA. It's, mm -hmm. uh, it's the Department of State. It's the military. I mean, I mean, if this had been World War II, Eisenhower would have been replaced about four or five <laughs> times within, those, that, within that four-year period. So I, uh, I believe uh, uh, very strongly in uh, knowledge and expertise. Uh, the criticism often is that is someone will go native on you. Right. And, well, that's a management issue. That's not uh, a substantive type of issue. So I believe time, uh, skills, language uh, are, uh, are really, really uh, essential in, uh, in engaging in successful espionage. You also had a part of your career where you, you managed congressional relations for CIA. And we, we, we constantly uh, try to reinforce the idea that, that dissemination is as important as collection analysis. The, the idea you could have a, the best intelligence agency in the world, you could have the smartest analysts, but if you can't convince policymakers of what the information means, of what they should be thinking about doing, you might as well have no CIA at all. In your time there, can you talk a little bit about your experiences dealing with members of Congress, with the committees, uh, and, and how uh, did that shape your worldview on government? Being as nice as you possibly can, <laughs> how did that shape your, your view on the relationship between intelligence agencies and Congress? I believe that, uh, in general, uh, across the board, uh, uh, Congress is uh, very supportive of intelligence. Uh, and also, I, you know, I think uh, the most interesting thing often enough is that the difference between an open session and a closed mm -hmm. session. Uh, in an open session, you know, both sides tend to try to make, uh, you know, political points. Right. And in a closed session, uh, that, uh, that really doesn't uh, take place. I mean, they tend to get right to the subject matter. Uh, in general, uh, their uh, uh, representatives and senators are as, uh, as well as informed as you can expect them to be. I mean, they often come from, you know, they can be some, you know, attorney and, right. you know, somewhere in rural Tennessee or a business person. And, um, but they are all, uh, uh, they tend to be, uh, they tend to be very uh, uh, studious. Uh, you know, and they, they, I think they do try their best. Um, often enough, I think a, a problem is that uh, they don't have the background in intelligence that, you know, you had some people like, you know, Senators uh, Luger, Biden, Kerry, who really became experts in mm -hmm. foreign affairs. And until very recently, uh, you didn't have these type of people uh, on the intelligence committees for an extended period of time. Right. That's changing. Right. I mean, like, uh, you know, uh, Senator Coates has been on there uh, uh, quite a uh, long period of time, both the first time he was a senator and now. Uh, Mrs. Uh, Senator Feinstein from California. She's, yeah. she's been there, yeah. so they get uh, they get a certain amount of expertise, which is very helpful. But if you have a if you have a good idea, uh, you know, generally uh, they will support you. They don't like being surprised, obviously, yeah. 
Uh, although sometimes I think that's a little overdone. Sometimes surprise is surprise. You can't do anything about it. Uh, but I really, I mean, I really enjoyed, uh, uh, you know, working as uh, director of congressional affairs. I loved having congressmen and senators coming overseas because you had more time with them. Right. And you had more time to explain um, your operational environment. And they get there a lot more relaxed. On only a couple of occasions in my 35-year careers, one or two where I would say uh, they were not serious uh, when they were overseas. I mean, they were almost always serious in trying to learn as much as they possibly could. And I think Codell's congressional delegations that we were talking about are are somewhat misunderstood by the average taxpayers. Like they're spending all this money to go over some random place, but that's really – the time when members of Congress can get away from their staffs, can get away from their constituents, no offense guys back at home, and really hunker down with the experts in the field. Uh, and I think yeah. it makes a big difference. I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. And like I say, most of these people have been very good listeners, ask excellent questions. Uh, you know, some of the people like Mrs. Pelosi and Senator McConnell that I've both seen overseas, there's really excellent people as far as being uh, – uh, knowledgeable of, of, about foreign affairs. So, one final question, and it might take a little while, because I think it's, it's it's a key component. If you if you Google Joe Whipple uh, and hit space and let it fill in that next word, uh, you'll see the word curveball pop up in many cases. Uh, and this is in reference to the code name for a uh, a, 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 a agent in place or, or a, a information source leading up to the war in Iraq. Uh, in 2002, 2003. Uh, and depending on what you read, you'll get about five different versions of the Joe Whipple curveball relationship. So we're actually going to let you talk about it and, and, and let the listener know what really happened from your perspective. Uh, yes, uh, I, I think uh, probably the best description, that's pretty much it, uh, 90% right, is in uh, uh, director George Tenet's uh, book on, uh, you know, has basically his autobiography on his time in, in the agency. Uh, uh, Kerbball was a uh, German intelligence source uh, reporting on mobile uh, biological chemical warfare labs. Uh, the I think the reporting went through the Defense Human Service, if my memory is correct, and uh, uh, came up after, after 9-11. And uh, Essentially, um, as noted, the request was uh, to have access to uh, to Curveball, uh, which the Germans said uh, uh, we could not have, and um, and their assessment of of him essentially was that, you know, well, this is his reporting, but we cannot cooperate it with anyone, and that includes other intelligence agencies. Uh, uh, international intelligence agencies as well as intelligence agencies in the region. And uh, that's essentially the the warning that I sent in uh, that, you know, to use an uncooperated source uh, could be be dangerous, you know, and and so on. And I think... uh, you know, um, he was the source used on, you know, uh, chemical and biological weapons. I think there was a British source on yellow cake, uh, the right. Italian source on the tubes, uh, Al-Libi on the Saddam Hussein uh, connection uh, with uh, al-Qaeda. Right. You know, and they, you know, it's, you know, just, and none of them were 
corroborated, and right. none of them were our sources. They were always they were someone else's. Uh, and uh, so I think um, uh, I I think it was uh, you know pretty flimsy to base a a you know. Uh, an argument for weapons of mass destruction based on those sources, including curveball. Right. I I don't want to make you assign blame or anything like that. Where where does that? How does something like that fall apart? What I mean by that is, uh, you said don't trust the guy. You said this is uncooperated evidence. The Germans are telling us is uncooperated. You sent that up to your bosses, which I assume was sent up to the National Security Council, which finally made its way to whoever was... Right. I don't know. You can't see this. You're you're shrugging your shoulders. Of course you don't know where it goes from there. That's that dissemination question, I think, that we were talking about with Congress. I mean, this is a pretty big deal. I mean, yes, it's not the only thing that got us into the war in Iraq, but it certainly was something that people now are looking back and saying, that curveball thing... And so there are people, again, if you Google you, they're saying that you were the one that tried to warn everybody. That don't listen to this guy. He's not somebody you want to listen to. Um, there are others saying other things. But, again, the, the, the idea of how does this fall apart? How do you – and not just for Iraq. Let's talk about in general. Let's, let's be you know in general. Where there are these – is it hindsight where we're going back and saying, well, duh, like we should have seen it coming? Or was it a collapse in the process? That, that led us to these conclusions, or was it basically a political decision okay. to to go to war? And that's I think that's what what, what it basically was. There is no better way to end this podcast. So, Joe Whipple, I really appreciate the time you've taken here to talk to us at the International Spy Museum. Thank you so much. Yeah, thank you. We look forward to continuing this dialogue with you, and we'd like to know if you have any comments or questions on today's spycast. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. Thank you, and we will see you next month.